Okay, so I would like to fill out a little bit and develop what we started this morning, the three approaches and practices that I offered this morning in the guided meditation. <clears throat> when we, as meditators, as practitioners, bring mindfulness to experience, bear attention to the flow of our experience, often, sometimes, to some degree, there's uh, a lessening, uh, a letting go of the story and a letting go of the kind of building up of the sorts of concepts that tend to create more problems. Okay? And with that, uh, some degree of letting go just comes automatically with mindfulness and with bare attention. Often, sometimes, not always, and I'm sure we all know this as meditators, mindfulness alone cannot do it. Uh, but some degree of letting go from mindfulness and bare attention. When we are in samadhi, to whatever degree, to you know, when, when the samadhi deepens, there's also at that time a non-feeding and a non-building of uh, suffering of problems as well. Non-feeding, non-building of self-sense, non-feeding, non-building also of world sense, of experience sense. Everything kind of fades. Now I've thrown this out a couple of times, but as one way you can kind of sum up what insight meditation is, it's just one way, but I find it quite helpful, is we're practicing, practicing ways of seeing that lead to letting go and freedom. Okay, that's kind of what insight meditation is. It's a collection, a whole collection, different ways of seeing that bring uh, some degree of freedom and letting go. So, what that means is that insight is not just a result. In other words, I can sit here and be mindful and suddenly I have an insight, it pops into the consciousness. Wonderful. But that's not the only, that's not the total meaning of insight. Insight then is a deliberate practicing of the kind of implications of that result, what, what it means. Deliberate practicing of a way of seeing. So, Here's a result. Let's say I'm no, I notice that when I let go of my aversion, the suffering decreases. Okay, that's an insight. Maybe it's the first time I've seen that. Whoa, a fresh insight. Great. But then I need to practice that over and over. I need to consolidate that insight. So I'm practicing a way of seeing that, of, of can I relax this aversion over and over. And that becomes a way of practicing, a way of seeing, a way of practicing insight. And that itself leads to new results. And then I can take those new results as a new way of seeing, and I can go further. Then I get some new results, and I can go further, further, further. So let's review briefly what we did this morning. Actually, I'll, I'll review it in kind of summary, then I'll say some general stuff, and then I'll come back in more detail to each of the three approaches. So there's a lot about kind of meditation practice tonight, the kind of nuts and bolts, really. So the first one was contemplating change, contemplating impermanence. The Pali word is anicca, anicca, A-N-I-C-C-A, anicca. I'll say more about that later. The second one uh, is actually, I'm going to, we had two ways of doing the second one, I'm actually going to, expand it now to three. I don't want to overcomplicate things and confuse you guys. But this all comes under what I would call dukkha, the second 
characteristics. So these three, impermanence, uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, are called the three characteristics. <coughs> dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, is what I'm calling the second one. Now again, remember, these are not results, so it's not like I only that I see that there is dukkha. It's, I'm, I'm wanting to understand something and use it as a way of seeing. So, dukkha has three, three subtly different ways of doing it. The first one comes out of the contemplation of impermanence. Okay? If I see that things, everything is impermanent, every, shut my eyes, we do this one, shut my eyes and I pay attention, and I see that everything is impermanent, and I focus on that impermanence, and pretty soon it should become obvious to me that if everything's impermanent, everything is incapable of providing me with lasting satisfaction. Is that logical enough? Yeah? Uh, and <coughs> so this one is a subtle shift of directly going into a mode of seeing everything as unsatisfactory. Dukkha. It's unsatisfactory. And that brings a letting go. In other words, I, or rather, if I see things as unsatisfactory, then I don't hold on to them. I just let them go. I let them come, let them go, because nothing, nothing for me there. There's nothing for me there. So that's the first way of doing dukkha. The second way is, as we talked about this morning, so this first way we didn't really do this morning. The second way is to sense the relationship uh, with, with the experience and to relax it. So basically, is there aversion, a pushing away of experience, or, a, or a grasping, holding on, pulling towards? And to do that over and over, sensing the relationship and relaxing it, over and over, sensing the relationship, relaxing it. The third way of doing the second practice, again, just shades of difference, is emphasizing quality of letting be, letting things be, letting it be, letting them be. Uh, or you could say emphasizing allowing, really emphasizing allowing, allowing this experience, allowing, allowing. Third practice we call anatta practice, so A-N-A-T-T-A. And the literal translation of that is, atta means self, anatta is a negation, so really the best translation is not self. So we're learning to regard uh, phenomena as not self, okay? as not me, not mine. Okay? Now, I'll come back to all these uh, later in the talk. <clears throat> so, really important to see where uh, putting, we're prioritizing a certain lens, a certain way of looking at experience. It's very easy with our history of insight meditation, particularly, to prioritize a kind of precision of mindfulness. Like I really want to be clear uh, where this sensation ends and and uh, exactly what the um, you know exactly what the texture of the experience is, or be very fine with the with the um, with the attention. That's not the priority when you're doing this three, these three characteristic practices. The priority is looking with a certain lens at the experience, either the lens of anicca or dukkha or, or anatta. A lot of information tonight, but I, I uh, think it's important because it's, it's going to be very helpful. 
bear in mind and practice with, and I said a lot of this uh, already this morning, that the mind has this amazing capacity of being able to focus in and make experience microscopic. I can look at this sensation in my knee and I can really go into it in a very narrow, focused way. The mind can be microscopic, but it can also be very spacious. And both of those are possible. I can open up the awareness to the whole body and beyond to much bigger space to include sound, etc. I will, I will learn different things in, in, in uh, both of those modalities. And they're, they're really useful for the meditator to be able to move between them. Okay. So I've been emphasizing uh, the need to really support the insight practices with samadhi, and I'm going to reiterate that. So I've tossed out, you know, 50-50, kind of 50%, 50-50. That's just a figure. But basically, most people, most people, not everyone, but most people, uh, need more, much more samadhi than one might initially think for, for the insight to go deep. Most people are on the side of not enough samadhi. There are a few people who just tend to kind of wallow in samadhi and not do enough investigation. But that's actually, that's actually rare, but it, does, it definitely happens. Um, so think about, really think about balancing. On the one hand, samadhi and metta practices. On the other hand, the insight practices. Really think, you know, 50-50 is just a figure. But really think about balancing them. Do you need to do them in a particular order? No. Absolutely not. So it's not the case, as you usually hear, that you need to sit down and get your samadhi together and get a little bit calm, and then you're ready to do your insight practice. That's usually how it's presented. It's actually not necessarily the case. You could um, do it the other way around. You could do a whole sitting of samadhi. Fine. You could spend a whole day doing samadhi if you want. You know, um, You could do a whole sitting of just insight practice, or you can split a sitting in half and start either with the samadhi, or the metta, or the insight. So there's a real fluidity here. There's a, there's a lot of possibility. It's more that over the course of this retreat, and I would even say over the course of your life, I would say that a practitioner really wants to think about balancing the development of these two, samadhi and insight. Really, that there's a lifelong uh, deepening and developing of both of them. So sometimes we're sitting or we're walking or we're standing in meditation. And as Rose was asking the other day about the subtle body energy, something feels blocked or so, there's some perceived problem. We're, we're suffering over something. Something feels difficult. And I might try and settle the mind in samadhi, but actually it's just like banging my head against a wall. Maybe at that point what's really helpful is to, is to use one of the insight practices. Here's this block, here's this difficulty contemplate the impermanence of it really look at it and see the impermanence relax the relationship with it see it as uh, you know, not self whatever um, and what can happen because these are ways of letting go uh, is the, the thing itself begin, the consciousness itself begins to have a little more space in it the thing becomes eased and then what might become uh, after a little bit might be the case is that one feels more spaciousness, more peace, more well-being in, in the whole kind of inner environment. At that point, if you want, you can continue doing the insight practice or you can kind of filter out that sense of well-being, uh, focus in on the sense of well-being and, and kind of lean, uh, incline more towards a samadhi practice.
Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah? <clears throat> so I was saying to someone this morning, developing a med- at a certain point in the development of meditation, it's a bit like uh, you're, an, you're an opportunist meditator. And you just, you're aware of the, the, the thermals, like a, like a buzzard sometimes you mm-hmm. see around here. You're just aware of the thermals. Oh, here's the possibility of some samadhi. Okay, I'll just groove with that for a while. Uh, or, or whatever else. And, and there's a sense of it can be quite fluid and open. So, part of what I just said, an implication there is, are we practicing with our difficulties? So this is really, really important. In other words, these, these three characteristic practices, they're especially helpful when, um, when there's difficulty. Okay, so um, one, one actually wants to use it over the whole range, over the whole range of experience. Make sure one's covering the whole range. So when things feel good, start contemplating the appearance of that, and or you know the other characteristics. When things feel just normal, here I am with a normal sensation in my knee. Three characteristics. When things feel difficult, definitely because they're ways of letting go of suffering. They're ways that bring freedom. But oftentimes, when a person doesn't feel good in a sitting or a walking, or you, you know, you feel sad, or you feel tired, or angry, or irritated, or blocked in some way, or there's pain in the body, or you feel depressed, or or the mind feels scattered, all of that can be should be taken up then as an object for the insight meditation. Really, really important. And even, even the one of scatteredness, it's interesting. You think, well, I need to have some degree of samadhi to meditate. But scat- and that's true. But scatteredness as well kind of has a certain feeling to it in the body. So if the mind is scattered and I just come into the body and feel the sense of that scatteredness and then contemplate that, how, how does the, usually when the mind is scattered, the body also feels agitated, not very settled and comfortable. Tune into that discomfort in the body and contemplate it with the, with the lenses of the three characteristics. So the, th- the three characteristics as lenses should lead to a, a, a decrease, a dying down of the suffering. That's their purpose. That's their purpose. And sometimes we give too much authority to uh, you know, impatience or, or uh, fear. How much authority do we give these these forces in our life? Tiredness, uh, blocks, resistance, irritation, judgmentalism. It's almost like they have too much authority. We need to really be using the practices when those things are around. So it doesn't mean to judge them. It just means to not just bow down to them when they're there. <clears throat> just to throw out a little bit. When there's tiredness... Uh, the impermanence practice in particular can be very, very helpful, especially seeing, seeing quite fast impermanence. If you can tune into that, it very much energizes the, the mind, the consciousness. <clears throat> As does spaciousness of awareness. So when we get tired, when we get sleepy, the mind kind of huddles in on itself to go to sleep. That's what we do at night, we huddle in like that. And when we feel tired in meditation, that's what the mind is doing as well. It's contracting. It's shutting the world out. I'll just shrink down here and shut everything else out and go to sleep. So opening up to a more spacious awareness can be very helpful. 
And the practice of letting go of our relationship, particularly letting go of aversion, is usually very helpful with tiredness because oftentimes aversion is a big part of the constellation of tiredness. I won't say much more about that. But But remember, these practices that we're doing with emptiness and with not-self, etc., they are just a range of tools among a broader range of tools. So that means it might be that you're actually going through something uh, difficult emotionally, uh, some some grief or, or something comes up, and it may be that you want to revert to more of a sort of simple insight meditation practice. In other words, just holding it, just being with it, being present to it, uh, bringing in a kind of kind mindfulness. Maybe that's the right approach. Or maybe you can just, in a gentle way, keep going and contemplate the grief itself as impermanent, etc. You have to play with this. There's not like a right and a wrong answer. Now, it's interesting with the three characteristics. They're not... um, how to say this? They're not all the same thing. So it can sometimes seem like, well, they're all just... It's all kind of the same. Um, Careful of that. Don't, Don't jump to that. They're very connected. They're definitely connected. Sometimes I say it's a bit like they're three sides of the same triangle that we're kind of looking at from different angles, perhaps. It might be, and a couple of people said this to me today already, oh, I that I already do that anyway for one of them. That's my, my basic practice, uh, which is wonderful. It's great. Um, but remember, these are developable very uh, to very very deep degrees as practices in other words each one is a kind of avenue it, each one is a kind of avenue into well basically all the way to freedom to realization and as avenues they kind of unfold so you take a certain practice like uh, like let's say uh, relaxing the relationship with and it, it has a way of unfolding as does the anatta has a, a slightly different way of unfolding uh, into depth and into into different, uh, well, very similar realization, into depth and into subtlety. So I don't know today, you know, it's just been a few hours, but did you notice if there was one that was your favorite? Was there one that you liked more than others or that seemed to work better than others? <laughs> <laughs> Good, okay. <laughs> Careful with this. You want to go with your favorite, okay? Uh, develop your favorite. Uh, careful of the language of should. Oh, I should get this one together because, you know, because my personality, this and da-da-da-da-da. Um, but favorite meaning, which is the one, and, and it may not be one, it may be a couple, it may be that they're all three equal, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But is there one that kind of feels like when you do it, it brings the most freedom? Like, when you do that, you really sense that, ah, there's letting go here. I can feel it happening. Uh, And there's a peace that comes here. And you sense that when you do it. That's the one that you want to develop. Uh, You'll get to them all. Everyone will get to them all. But that's the one that particularly you'll want to develop. Eventually, it does get to this sense like they're all kind of three sides of the same triangle. And eventually, when you get really practiced at this, it's really humming. It's almost like phenomena just arising very quickly, and you're just kind of seeing them immediately as all three characteristics and just all, all three applying. There's just an instant, instantaneous letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. Um, but obviously, that, that takes uh, developing it.
Right, so let's go into each of these in a little bit more detail. <coughs> Impermanence, anicca. We can notice this at different kind of rates of change, put it that way, there's probably a more poetic way of saying it, but different rates of change, meaning one can contemplate death. I mean, that's the, the major anicca, isn't it? It's like, well, we're going to die. Uh, and actually, that's part of this practice. You could also contemplate anicca on the level of more like everyday kind of, what mood are you in now? How do you feel right now? How does that compare with lunchtime? Same? Different? How did that compare with breakfast time? There's a kind of everyday role and uh, wave to things, and just reflecting on that is also very helpful. More for our purposes now, um, probably a a kind of quicker moment-to-moment sense of change is, is probably more helpful. But careful with this, don't put too much pressure on experience to see the fastest possible rate of change. So you might have read certain uh, writings and teachings that you know the meditator is supposed to see you know x thousand moments in a second or something, and you think, goodness how you know <laughs> um, and it's certainly po- it's certainly possible that the mind can develop such a sharpness um, but that's actually not the point, okay it's not the point. so sometimes you will come across teachings B- Buddhist teachings that kind of very strongly in Point suggest or downright outright say it that that is the point. <clears throat> um, I, I would say just let the change and the fluctuation appear to you as it naturally appears to you. Don't force it to be faster or more, more kind of, uh, you know, this very fast flickering. Um, and just tune into that change, and then maybe it refines and gets faster and more subtle and more quick. And, you know, maybe not. And okay if not. Really okay if not. The point of it is letting go. Okay? The point is not to see this incredibly fine uh, rate of change. So there is a teaching that's not anything that the Buddha said, but it's somewhere in the commentaries in the Abhidharma, and it exists to this day in Buddhist circles, that what we're trying to do is get so sharp with our attention that you see these subatomic particles of moments of, of sensation, and they're called kalapas. And the meditator kind of uh, tries and huffs and puffs as hard as they can, and, sorry, I shouldn't say that, but uh, gets down to this very, very uh, sharp sense of things. In a, as the implication is that that's the ultimate truth of things. You've got down to kind of the basic building blocks of experience. The whole teaching of emptiness, the whole reason why Nagarjuna bothered to write all those amazing works and treatises was exactly to say that's not the case. That there isn't, there are not fundamental building blocks. That's a a myth, uh, a a non-existent. They are empty. So just let the change appear to you as it appears and trust that because it's about letting go rather than about seeing some kind of ultimate subdivision of things. So if I'm approaching it through impermanence, as I said before, because things are impermanent, they're unsatisfactory. 
Now, also from the from the point of view of the lens of impermanence, because things are impermanent, they're also anatta. They're not self. Why is that? If I look inside and all I see is changing things, my sense and my sense of self is of something more static, more permanent. Then, how can these things that I see be me? Because my sense of self is permanent and static, fixed, and all I see is change. So what I see can't be me. You, you get that? Yeah. <clears throat> it also can't be mine. Because when I see it changing so much, I realize I don't have control over it. And as the Buddha said, if the body or the feelings or the mind or consciousness, if that were you, if that were myself, I would be able to say, don't change, don't get old body, don't uh, change my mood out of this nice mood that I'm in. There would be a control, but I can't do that. It's not mine. I'm not the possessor, the controller of this. Uh, I am to some extent, but not completely. <clears throat> so, I just want to touch on something briefly. Uh, it's important. Sometimes you will also hear um, people talking about emptiness and kind of saying, to say something is empty just means that it's just exists for a moment and, and it's just fleeting. Everything's very fleeting. That's equating emptiness with impermanence. Okay? You understand? You're just taking you're taking a description of impermanence and saying that's what emptiness means. Do, do you follow? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what emptiness means. Okay? It's, uh, it's, it's important to see that. Uh, you, you will come across this quite a lot. Um, we're going to fill this out why that's not the case case much more in the retreat, but just to say right now, it harks back to the first talk I did and the general talk on emptiness. Emptiness really means it's this thing is dependent on the point of view of the mind. It's dependent on, it's not, not that it's changing, it's dependent on the point of view. So those, you know, silly examples I gave about Scotland and, and whatever, uh, that was a very gross way of saying that Scotland is a an artificial construct, a concept, it's empty of inherent existence. Now we can take a lot of those same arguments and make them much, much more subtle and kind of penetrating. There's something about depending on the mind, means empty, and also realizing the way the mind builds and fabricates experience. We're going to talk a lot more about that on the retreat. The mind builds and shapes perception and experience. So... Impermanence is very, very useful, but it doesn't actually bring the same degree of release and realization and understanding as a, f- a full understanding of emptiness. It's, it's not uh, as complete, as, as powerful. But it is a very, for many people, for many people, it's a very important stepping stone on the way, very important stepping stone. <clears throat> so not to dismiss it at all. Okay. Second one. Dukkha. Uh, first one, first, and we divided this into three. First one I already talked about. Uh, things are fleeting. Things don't last. Things are unsatisfactory because of that. They can't satisfy me. Watch out. So one way you can do it is just kind of s- seeing through a lens of this thing's unsatisfactory, that thing's unsatisfactory. It's, unsatisfactory. it's all unsatisfactory. Careful that this doesn't mean the same to the mind as having aversion to. It doesn't mean, to, to label something as unsatisfactory doesn't mean to be averse to it. It just means, can't do it for me, can't do it for me, therefore I let go. 
Okay, so aver- aversion can creep in, and uh, be careful. Second approach, I'm aware it's a lot of info. I hope it's okay. Yeah, is it okay? Yeah. <coughs> um, second approach. Experience can be divided into pleasant experience and unpleasant experience, an experience that's neither particularly pleasant or unpleasant. There's a word for that, it's called Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. And it refers to, it means experience or sensation or feeling, and it's whether experience or sensation or feeling is um, pleasant or unpleasant or in between. What happens is when there's pleasant experience, we want more of it, we want to keep hold of it. That's just a normal reaction. When there's unpleasant experience, we're aversive, we want to get rid of it. Normal reaction. What we want to do in this second practice is become sensitive to the texture of experience, pleasant or unpleasant, and see if we can be sensitive to the pushing away of the unpleasant and the pulling towards us of the pleasant, sensitive to the push-pull that the mind does, and then really see, and this is realize, that the suffering comes from the pushing and the pulling. Okay, this is a really important insight. The suffering comes from the pushing and the pulling. Something we have to see and realize over and over, really get that clear. It's not so much in the object, in the experience, it's in the, it's in the relationship. So that's, that's a very important thing that we want to consolidate as an insight. If one's doing this kind of practice and re- feeling the relationship and relaxing it, <clears throat> so one feels relationship and there's a bit of aversion, let's say, and one relaxes that aversion, there's a letting go. That letting go can often allow a calming of, of the consciousness and, and of the experience because the pushing away is a kind of agitating. Do you see that? I'm, I'm struggling with experience. When I let go of the relationship, a calmness can come in to, to the experience. So that's very nice and you should let yourself enjoy it when that happens. Let yourself enjoy it. But in a way more importantly is that the calmness that's allowed because of that actually allows the mind to become more to see more subtly and more sensitively and pick up on because of the more subtlety and more sensitivity pick up on subtler levels of pushing and pulling and aversion and craving do you see and then you do the same thing again with that more subtle level and you let go, and maybe it happens again. Maybe you let go again, and it gets even calmer, maybe. And in the even more calmness, you're even more subtly aware and sensitive, and pick up on an even more subtle level of aversion clinging, and you can let go of that. You understand? So the whole thing has this really uh, powerful potential of getting deeper and deeper, and more and more subtle. It's a very, very deep practice, very, very um, powerful practice. And one just does that over and over and over. So again, you're prioritizing this lens, either unsatisfactory, 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 or feeling the aversion, the clinging, relaxing it, relaxing it, relaxing it. Or, as I said, it has a third possibility, which is just emphasizing the allowing, over and over, allowing, allowing, letting be, allowing. 
Okay. When we let go in this way, we notice, I touched on this last night, what do we notice happens to the self-sense? Did anyone notice this today? The self-sense gets lighter, gets less solid, less heavy, less built up. Did anyone notice this? Yeah, good, great. Um, why? Because the self-sense is a dependent arising. Self-sense is a dependent arising. It depends on this push and pull. To the degree that I push and pull and struggle with experience, that will be the degree of the solidity and the kind of built-upness of the self-sense. Okay? Which self-sense is the real self-sense? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> Which one is the real one? <laughs> We've got none of them, all of them. Both are right. There's a spectrum of, of the degree of built-upness on self-sense, depending on how much I push and pull. There isn't a real self-sense. It's a dependent arising. The self-sense lacks inherent existence. You see how all this is? Okay, so that's, that's a very important insight, as I said, to practice and to consolidate. These kind of things, you can see them once, and it's not going to make any difference to your life. You have to see them thousands of times, over and over. See this, see this, see this, until it's known here, really known in the belly and the heart. You know that about the self. It's a dependent arising. It's empty of inherent existence. The second thing that happens when we let go in that way is that it becomes easier to see that experience, that phenomena are not self. You might have noticed that as well today. It becomes easier to see things as kind of just happening. Did anyone get that? Yeah? Good, good. Um, so that's the, another fruit of that particular practice. So let's talk about this third one, which is a kind of, uh, which is the anatta one, seeing uh, anatta. So one can take this up as a direct, like directly go to this. You don't have to go through impermanence or via the letting go, etc. You can directly, uh, with practice, for some people, begin contemplating things as just happening, not so. Interestingly, the Buddha's, in, in his initial teaching, you know, the discourses that have come through the Pali Canon, he tended to avoid the whole question of the actual nature of the self, um, that's not quite true to say that. Rather say it this way, that when people asked him, is there a self or is there not a self, he often wouldn't give them an answer. He would back away from the question, is there a self or is there not a self? And he had a few ways of going about this teaching of self, but one of them, one of them has to do with dependent arising. The other one has more to do with a kind of strategy, as one of my teachers used to call it, a strategy of meditation, which is exactly what we're doing with this practice a strategy, a lens, learn to see, to practice um, seeing things as not-self, not me, not mine. With that, to realize that to identify with something is to suffer. Okay, so that, there's an insight there. When I identify with something, there's some degree of suffering there. Sometimes we don't feel it in the moment, but it's actually still there in the moment because identifying is a form of clinging. When I identify, it's another form of grasping hold of something. And I actually feel that as a disturbance if I'm sensitive enough. But oftentimes we don't pick up on the 
suffering of identifying until later. We identify with, hey, aren't I wonderful? And then someone comes along and says, actually, I think you're, you're a schmuck. <laughs> and our identity is uh, causing us a problem then. So suff- uh, suffering comes from identifying, but more importantly, we're practicing, as the Buddha says, regarding things as not me, not mine. So we're practicing this lens of, let's, can I just see everything as not me, not mine? And that's the kind of initial way into this that we're, that we're doing. Now, usually, usually, of the three, this is the most difficult one, or the most hard for people to get. But as I said, people have their favorites, and so uh, go with your favorite. It might be if this is the one that's your ticket, go, go, absolutely go for it. You know, don't worry that it's often the most difficult one. To be clear, what we're doing here, and there's quite a lot to say about this one. <clears throat> Later on in the week, we will introduce a pra- practice. I said this yesterday, where you, we're actually looking for the self. So we're looking for <laughs> the self, which seems so obvious. We actually find that we can't find it. I look everywhere where it could possibly be, every way that it could possibly be, and I can't find it. This practice is different. We're not looking for the self. We're looking at phenomena, at experience, and we're not identifying <coughs> with them. Okay? Do, do you get the difference there? One is looking for a self somewhere, and one's looking at experience and not identifying with it. Do you understand? Yeah. <coughs> so usually, human beings uh, are actually unenlightened consciousnesses. When 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 they regard experience, there's uh, a taking it to be me or mine. When we regard phenomena in the world. Uh, certain phenomena, we take it to be me or mine. This is me, or it's mine, uh, my emotional life, my thoughts, my consciousness, etc. We t- typically regard things as me or mine. Now, we could be doing that in a very conscious way. I believe that I am my mind, you know, and I'm very clear and I'm talking to someone, or I believe that I am consciousness or something. Or I could be doing it more typically in a very unconscious way. I'm typically unconsciously taking things to be me and mine. I'm doing this over and over, all the time, all the time. So there's this constant identifying of this, of that. It's constantly <coughs> picking up things to, and identifying with them. What we're doing in this anatta practice is kind of unhooking that identification. So it's like a hook. I say, this is me, and that's me, and that's mine. It's like hooking everything, and we're just taking that hook out, and letting the thing be without saying me, mine, me, mine. So, it it might be that this was your favourite. It might it might be that it was a little more difficult to get into it. Actually, how was it for people? It's all right. Good. Great. Fantastic. <coughs> I will say this though. At first, just a sustained mindfulness. Anyone sustaining mindfulness long enough, um, it will eventually they will eventually have a sense at some time that uh, things. Are the experience in, in some moment is not me, not mine. It will eventually, it's almost like mindfulness just kind of creates a sense of space around experience or phenomena. And it's ju- it just naturally appears as just happening. So that's very normal to a sustained mindfulness. Samadhi really helps. Okay, The more samadhi, the easier it is to see things as not me, not mine. The more metta, the easier it is to see things as not me, not mine. 
And uh, with all that, just naturally a sense of just happening might spontaneously occur at one time. And then you can deliberately cultivate it and develop that particular way of seeing and seeing things as not me, not mine. And similar to what I said before, if at times you're trying to do this anatta one and it's not happening, it's not happening, well, perhaps try relaxing the push and pull to things. And what that does, or contemplating the impermanence, what that does is create more space in the consciousness and a kind of lightness there and then seeing the anatta, seeing that things are not me, not mine, will be much easier. Okay. And some people, when they develop this practice, they like to actually label phenomena as they're coming up with very, very lightly, uh, say, not self, not self. It's just the faintest whisper in the back of the mind, not self, or not me, not mine. Very faint whisper. You want this labeling to be very light, uh, not cumbersome. So it's very agile, and a bit, uh, you know you can use it quickly and, and very, very delicately. So it's really just a whisper. Mm-hmm. I was once speaking. This is a while ago. Speaking to someone, uh, there's a stock phrase the Buddha uses uh, to regard things. He says, "You should regard things. This is not me. This is not myself. This is not who I am." And this meditator had read that and was trying to use that in meditation, sort of clunking things. As, this is not me. This is not... <laughs> it's too. It's way too cumbersome and clunky. So you want something very, very light if you're going to use a label at all. How does it differ from this Mahasi practice then? From? From Mahasi practice. How does it differ from Mahasi? Because the label is specifically saying not me, not mine. That's all. It's not It's not labeling throbbing or pulsing or... it's. it's you're only interested in the particular lens of seeing anatta, and so seeing everything as not me, not mine, or you could even shorter label would be not self. So it's, it's one label that can follows right through if you're going to use a label. You don't have to use a label with it. What we really want is the the seeing, the consciousness, to shift into another mode of seeing. Usual mode of seeing is to identify with everything. It's me, it's mine. We don't even realize this is going on. So what we want is just to nurture, to encourage a shift to a different mode of seeing. And if the label helps that, the labeling not-self, great. If if you don't need the label, let it go. Okay? You guys still okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah? It's interesting as well to, to watch and to kind of inquire, what am I identifying with at any moment? Or what is being identified with at any moment? Put it that way. What is being identified with, and how? What's the form of identification? Is it as me or as mine? Okay, so this is very interesting to explore. So we can identify, certainly, usually not as me, I hope. Uh, we don't say, I am the clock. Um, some people do, and then we, <laughs> we uh, call social services. But, um, um, but there's definitely identify, identifying with the external as mine. Okay, um, Clothes. So interesting, practice this. Your clothes are draped over your chair in your room. Look at them, stare at them for a little while in, in a relaxed way. Are they mine? Are they mine? Uh, your car. You can't do that one. Well, some people can do it on retreat. You'd be sitting out in the parking lot. <laughs> uh, you're at home. Your t- so this can be a very relaxed kind of meditation. Your TV, your stereo, whatever it is. You can even do this with your 
partner, loved one, spouse. Okay, it doesn't uh, lead to lack of love. It actually just opens up something in in the, can open up something in a relationship. But practice this, you know, looking at something that we typically take as mine and getting the sense that, sure, it's mine, of course it's mine, of course you're my wife, of course da-da-da, but you're also not mine. Of course those are my clothes hanging over the chair, but they're not mine as well. There's a sense of being able to see both ways, a sense of the grip of ownership or the belief in ownership loosening. And there's a freedom with that, there's a freedom. And that's what we're interested in is getting the sense over and over, the taste of the freedom that comes with it. Of course, we take as me, and both me and mine, body and mind. So these are the principal things that usually we take as, as me and mine, body and mind. So let's look at this. Body. Uh, Ramana Maharshi was a great, uh, one of the great Indian sort of Hindu sages of the last century. He said, um, I think it was him that said it, trying to find happiness while identifying with the body is like trying to cross a river on the back of an alligator. (laughs) Very lovely. Um, So again, we want to learn to not necessarily identify with the body. You know, can we practice that so we're actually able to not identify with the body? So again, look at your body. I almost did it this morning, we didn't have time. What is it to just look at your hand and sustain that looking for a while? Or look at your foot? Or look at, uh, you know, your calf or something? And just look. And again, if you just sustain a relaxed mindfulness, after a while you get the sense of, yeah, it's me, but it's also, it's kind of not me. Um, it's particularly interesting to do this with body parts that we don't usually look at, because our body has lots of those <laughs> areas that you don't usually pay much attention to. And now we've all got single rooms here, <laughs> so perfectly valid practice to spend some time looking at parts of your body that you don't actually look at. And it's interesting because we habituate a sense of me and mine with the parts that we usually look at. When you start looking, you know, open between your... Unless you've got that athlete's foot and you're always looking. So look at there and you suddenly get... God, I've never even seen that part before. Look at that. Isn't it a funny little thing? And play with all this stuff. Learn to see things two ways. Learn to see things two ways and feel the freedom of that. Feel the freedom. Now the Buddha said, given we can identify with the body and mind, he, he actually said, it makes more sense to identify with your body, because if you look at the mind, God, it doesn't stay still for half a second. You know, It's all over the place. What is there to identify in there? Uh, and the body appears to stay still. Even more than that, oftentimes it's the mind that causes us so much trouble, especially for, for untrained mind, causes so much difficulty in the heart and the mind. It's, to identify with it is uh, very much painful. So if we take Ramana Maharsh- Maharshi's analogy about the alligator, and you could say, well, to identify with the mind would be like trying to cross that same river, placing yourself in the jaws of that alligator when the alligator hadn't been fed for three days. <laughs> It's really going to be a problem identifying with the mind. Mm. Is it too hot in here? Are you too hot? Yeah, it's really hot. <laughs> Can someone please open some windows and get a little more air? That one definitely. 
Abby, if you want to open the main window, that might help. Will you be okay there? Okay. Okay. So, we can divide the typical things we identify with into two, body and mind. We can also divide them into five, which you can divide it many ways. We could divide into five, and this is very uh, common in the Buddhist teaching, and dividing what we typically identify with into what's called the five skandhas in Sanskrit or khandhas in Pali. So, uh, in Pali is K, K-H-A-N-D-A-S, I think, khandhas. Um, just briefly explain what that means. Body is the first one. Vedana, which I've already talked about, the kind of sensations and the fact of their pleasantness or unpleasantness is the second one. And that means sensations are any of the sense doors, so sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and thoughts and mental images. Perceptions are the third one, so or discriminations. Uh, the fourth one is what's called mental formations, or sometimes also called compounding factors, and sometimes also called volitional formations. This is a tricky one. It basically... Uh, Includes a lot. Of st- includes everything that's not in the other four. Okay. <laughs> it's a kind of catch-all, um, but there's there's different reasons why they're given different names, and we'll probably get into it at different what points of the retreat. What's that? What's that last one? The fourth one is. Let's just call it mental formations <coughs> for now. Okay. And the fifth one is consciousness, but I'm going to use the word knowing. It's knowing, knowing this and knowing that. Okay. Knowing objects. Now, sometimes uh, you hear this teaching talked about as if the Buddha was kind of defining what a human being is. A human being is these five components kind of stuck together and functioning together. Actually, it's not that. It's a description of the totality of our experience. The totality of our experience can be uh, surmised, if that's the right word, surmised in, in the five the five khandhas. So it's a way of breaking down experience. It's also um, the possible and probable things we will tend to identify with is, is included in the five khandhas. So it's, again, it's not ultimately real. It's just a helpful way of breaking down uh, our reality in order to practice and approach practice with. So one can go about practicing all these three characteristics in relationship to different khandhas deliberately. Let me deliberately practice with Vedana. Let me deliberately practice with the body, etc. So with the anatta practice, again, to be aware, to beware, beware, be aware, if aversion is creeping in the back door and we're kind of clubbing things over the head with this not me, not mine, not self. To say something is not self implies that actually it can be there. It can be there. Uh, If I don't like it, it's okay, it can be there because it's not self. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not a problem, it's not my problem. 
Do you, do you get that? You understand? So careful if the... What's so funny? You, you sound like some yeah just watch out that aversion is not coming in the back door it should function as something that allows allows a letting be of things Another problem, difficulty that people often run into with this kind of practice is what I call the kink in the carpet phenomenon, the kink in the carpet scenario. So it's a bit like when you've got a carpet, a wall-to-wall carpet that your workman has put in, and it's got a kink in it. Is that the right word? It's got a little kink. And so you stamp on the kink, but it just reappears over there. (laughs) And so you stamp over there, and it reappears over there. Very easy to get into that relationship with this practice, but you have to. What that's what person's gotten into when that happens is they're trying to get rid of the sense of self, which is not what we're trying to do here. Okay, it's a subtle difference, but it makes a big difference to whether you feel enormously frustrated uh, by this or actually quite freed by it. So what we're doing again is we're seeing this moment of phenomena as not-self. It's not that we're trying to find and then squash the self-sense. Okay? Does it make sense? I'm slightly lost. Slightly lost. No, please say if you're not. I mean, it's fine. I'm very tired. Okay. Um, We're not trying to get rid of the self-sense. We're trying to regard a phenomena in this moment as not-self. They're subtly different things, but importantly different for this practice. So I was working with someone a few weeks or months ago uh, on personal retreat, and she was getting into this in a very, very nice way. And then she said, well, what about memory? Which I thought was a really interesting question. What about memories? I can see that they're not me. I don't have a memory and think that's me, the memory itself. But it's hard to say they're not mine, because who else's are they? This is important. What we're saying, not mine, means not owned by something separate and solid and independently existent. Okay, this this is quite subtle. It's not, or having this sense of it as there's nothing here that exists independently and solidly by itself that owns this memory. Do Do you see? So again, we're practicing a way of seeing. And this, this one in particular, as I said, it's, it's a more subtle practice, I think, this anatta. And it will evolve, it will evolve, this practice. If that piece, what I just said about memory, feels like, well, that's a hard distinction to make. It will evolve, um, particularly being influenced by other practices that we'll introduce and that, that we're talking about. And um, particularly the one where we actually go looking for ourselves and can't find it. That starts to uh, make the this practice, the anatta practice, a lot easier. Um, samadhi influences it, the contemplation of dependent arising. All this make the anatta practice easier and fuller. Okay. What happens as a meditator begins this journey with the anatta practice in particular? Um, 
Yeah, in particular the anatta practice, but also the letting go of the relationship practice, but in particular anatta, is that, how to put it, your range of skill develops, it expands slowly. What do I mean by that? It's a lot easier if I said to you, Richard, let go of your identification with consciousness right now. That would probably be quite difficult for you to do (laughs) in this moment. It's a lot easier to do that with body sensations. That's why we did that in the the meditation today. What happens is we build up our range of what we can let go of. Uh, So body and body sensations usually uh, easier to work with at first. Um, Then perhaps maybe something like the Vedna, the pleasant or the unpleasant. Thoughts. Thoughts are actually more difficult to see as not me, not mine, than body sensations for most people. For most people. Again, this all this is very individual and you'll have to play with it. Um, emotions, that's an interesting one. Is that hard to disidentify with? Harder than thoughts? Don't know. You'll have to see. Um, intentions, the subtle moving. You know, if I, I want to move my hand or move my foot to take the first step in walking meditation. Can I see that as not me, not mine? It takes practice because it's quite subtle. Perceptions. Can I, you know, can I disidentify with perceptions? All this, you're building up, you're slowly expanding your range based on a kind of getting, getting a smaller range firm and uh, established in your ability to let go of it first. So I, I get able to let go of body sensations and then I start expanding it to other things. That you can do it most of the time. But it doesn't maintain, um, you know, I can't kind of maintain a concert like, right, I completely let go of body sensations, but, you know, and then move on kind of in that meditation to emotions or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Um, how about if you can let go of the body sensations most of the time you try to do so? then try and find something more subtle to let go of. That that work like that? Yeah. Um, and there may be times where actually in the moment you're actually, I'm letting go of body sensations and thoughts. And, and the sort of range in that moment is actually expanding and expanding and expanding until eventually you can actually get that you've let go of everything, of identifying with everything in that moment. Yeah? Yeah. Just that that identification changes, you know, like... Yes, that's true. Um, what to say about that? There's a way that it can become more constant. It will become more constant uh, as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. So just just keep practicing that. Eventually, we get to what I just asked Richard: awareness. Can I let go of being identified with? watching and being the one who experiences, being the consciousness. That's a very subtle level of of disidentification. Really possible for a meditator, but you have to... I've never met anyone who doesn't work up to it. I've never met anyone who doesn't work up to it. Um, Even more subtle, perhaps, than that, the intention to pay attention to something... Very, very subtle. The intention to, to pay attention to an object. I have a sense of anatta becomes stronger, then that's going to reduce. Does, it, does intention reduce? Uh, certain intentions will reduce, but certain intentions are still going to be there, and, and the more subtle intentions, yeah. 
So that that's a very rough map. I mean, I traced an order, but as I said, it's going to be very individual. And it's just one has to. Uh, the the general principle applies that you 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 get good at a certain area of letting go and establishing that, and then you expand it and you, and you expand it. It's, it's a gradual uh, practice. So when we let go, and I touched on this yesterday, um, say I'm letting go of my identification with body sensations and I let go of identification with thoughts, and I let go of identification with emotions, and so there's quite a lovely degree of freedom will come in there. It will feel very spacious and free. Almost without a doubt, you can assume that the identification will have gone to awareness. Okay. Now, again, it can do that in a very conscious way. You might believe a teaching or doctrine, Buddhist or otherwise, that you are awareness, you are the witness, capital W, you are... Uh, the no, be the knowing, or you know, you hear these other teachings, um, or it may just be that without even realizing it, the identification has gone to awareness. That's a subtle form of identification. But that's also, is that not? Um, identification moves between different things. So um, we identify with the body, and in the moment we're identified with the body, we're actually, funnily enough. Uh, not identified with the mind. So it, it moves around very quickly. And a more subtle, I was going to say hiding place, that's not really the right word, a more subtle residing place for identification is to identify with awareness. There's, there's still a, an identification there. Uh, and, and that can also, one can practice to be able to disidentify with awareness. Extremely powerful when you get to that point, extremely powerful uh, point in the meditation. No one's at that place right now, but I, w- I would just say some words. You can do that in a very relaxed way, and sometimes relaxing into it is actually what helps it. Other times, being more intense helps it. Is that another way of framing jhana practice? No. Um, increasingly, increasingly subtle, subtle identification. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. <sighs> <laughs> I'd have to think about that. I view jhana practice as oh, one way of doing it, as actually you're, you're building less of a sense of both the self and the world and, and experience. And in that, there will, be, um, there will be less identification, but it won't... Um, it's more like you, you, you would identify to a more subtle sense of the body or a more subtle sense of the mind rather than the whole of the sense of the body. The whole. That's a, it's a good question, right? <laughs> Otherwise we'll be here all night. But no, that's, it's good. It's good. Are you guys still okay? Yeah. All right. Uh, so one way to think about it, you can. I don't want to say too much about this now because I say no, no one's at that point right now. But it's definitely possible for a meditator. Th- the part of the clue is thinking of consciousness as knowing, knowing rather than some entity called consciousness. Towards the end of the retreat, we're going to talk a lot about the actual nature of consciousness itself, and that consciousness is also empty of inherent existence, but um, that helps a little bit. So, a meditator can develop this skill, this capacity to just let go of identification, let go of identification, let go of identification, have nothing, be nothing, and actually in that moment, practice having nothing, and owning nothing, and being nothing. And it's interesting, you know, if you think about uh, some of the teachings of Jesus, and particularly on the Sermon of the Mount, some of what may be the deeper mystical meaning of something. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Really beautiful. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I have nothing. I own nothing. None of this is mine. None of this is mine. I'm practicing that. What opens up for the meditator? The kingdom of heaven opens up. Gradually. All right. We're almost done. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about... Um, that was outlining the practice, but just to finish on a more general note, it's, it's something about philosophical precision a little bit. When I use this practice of anatta, and this morning in the guided meditation, we were using the sound, and you listen to the, you know, the beautiful bird song, and it's like it just arises out of nothing and disappears back into the, into nothing, into silence, and then another sound arises. Sometimes you get that sense with body sensations and with thoughts. There's enough spaciousness in the awareness. They're just kind of arising out of nothing and disappearing back into nothing. Did anyone get that sense a little bit? No? Is that, yeah, good, good, great, okay. So it's really, really helpful to see that sense of things arising out of nothing and disappearing out of nothing. It really helps the anatta practice. It really helps letting go and letting them, letting them go back into that nothing, letting them belong to that nothing. It's a very helpful way of seeing. Um, strictly speaking, it's not true, because things don't arise out of nothing. Now, again, teachings on emptiness, even within the Buddhist tradition, you get it talked about, we'll talk a lot about this in next week sometime, um, you, you get it talked about as emptiness is this big nothing out of which everything arises, a sort of ground of being or big space of awareness, etc. And that's not actually the, tru- the truth of things, but it's a very helpful way of seeing. A very, very helpful way of seeing. Um, I heard this thing, I don't know where it was from. You know, things don't have to arise out of anything. We don't have to see things arising out of anything. So when the wind blows, who is blowing? You know, when the thought arises, who is thinking? It's just thinking. It's just something happening. So that's not true, but it's a very, very... Well, not ultimately true, but it's a very, very helpful way of seeing. More ultimately true, or more accurate, more precise is that everything arises, all things, all things arise out of conditions. Conditions come together and something arises out of those conditions. So, this is one of the things I didn't get time to say last night. This is a really good practice as well. It's a different take on anatta and to see things as arising out of a web of conditions. So let me give you an example. Um, or rather, usually the self takes responsibility, takes over responsibility for everything, absolutely everything. And so we end up blaming ourselves for a lot, and then all the pain of that. So for example, to me, because I see it all the time, a really good, a really good example is giving a Dharma talk. So it may seem to you, actually not in this group, because people keep interrupting me, but <laughs> <laughs> usually... It's always like that in these retreats, which is one of the lovely things, but it ends up that we've gone over an hour, it's fine. Um, Usually, if I give a Dharma talk, it's mostly me talking. And to most of the people in the hall, it seems like Rob is giving a Dharma talk. And it seems like, and I'm sure different people think, he is really boring, or he is really intellectual, or he hasn't quite got it right, or he's funny, or he's this, or he's that, or da-da-da-da-da. 
My experience of giving a Dharma talk is that it's totally contingent on who's in the room and how they're listening. So it's a totally mutual process. You guys are giving the Dharma talk as much as I am right now. Okay, I really feel that when I'm doing that. Some of you might have performed music, etc., in a in with an audience, and you really see this back and forth. Or even if you're, you know, you're telling a friend something vulnerable and intimate, and they start. <laughs> sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry, you know, um, or you know, looking at their nails or something. Or it's going to have an effect on what gets expressed, how it gets expressed, the energy, or, you know two people making love, and one person starts yawning. <laughs> it's like, of course it's going to take the wind out of the sails of the other person. I mean, um, things are a dependent arising. We tend to make others responsible, make ourselves responsible. So I know, you know, when I give a talk and it feels a certain way, sure, it depends, am I tired, am I not, you know, can I even read my little tiny handwriting notes and stuff. Um, mostly, it seems to depend on the energy in the room and the quality of the listening. Now, the quality of the listening, of course, is dependent on why I'm, why I'm putting out. There's a mutual dependency here. So you give off certain signals and certain... Uh, the, you know, when there's a quality of real aliveness and presence sometimes, and that affects what I say and how I say it and what I'm... etc. Same sometimes... You know, opening talks are really funny. They can feel so frigid sometimes, because m- you guys weren't like this, but oftentimes, uh, <laughs> sometimes people are just in a state of shock when they arrive on retreat, and it's, you know, people don't know anything, it's very, it's very, um, the whole thing hasn't kind of been lubricated and softened up, and so it feels quite heavy and staid, etc. Why? It's just a dependent arising. Do I feel like I'm boring because, no. Maybe I should, but I, you know, I don't. Um, but we see this, and you can see it in, in all kinds of ways. What are the conditions that give rise to something in the moment, also in the past? So we blame ourselves to th- for things. Maybe I was tired. Maybe in some interaction, the person was placing huge pressure on me, or judging me, or being really critical. And that affected how I spoke, and what I was able to access in that moment, how I expressed myself or not. So, we can understand, you can understand what I just said intellectually and say, oh yeah, I see that, that's really clear. The habit of delusion will be to keep seeing in terms of self. I keep seeing in terms of self, blaming self and holding self responsible. So over and over and over again, we need to practice, again, the golden world word of seeing things a different way. Seeing things in terms of, it's a web of conditions that gives rise to something. So what conditions gave rise to that? When we find ourselves blaming ourselves, actually to inquire, look back on the experience, say, what was the web of conditions that gave rise to that not being so great in in whatever way it was? All... I'm going to leave a bit out because it's getting quite quite late. Um, unless you guys are still okay, I don't know. How's the energy? Yeah, All right, great. Uh, <laughs> no one asked me how I am. <laughs> 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 I'm fine. I'm good. 
A lot of times, it's, I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that all you guys seem very receptive. You probably wouldn't have signed up for the retreat if you weren't. But sometimes in, in other retreats, and I put out some of this stuff, and I suggest that people might practice in some of these ways, and oftentimes there's a lot of resistance or reluctance on, on the part of people to pra- practice in these ways. And some, It's coming for different reasons, but sometimes it's because people are... are either horrified or just reluctant to engage in a kind of doing in practice. So I'm doing this contemplation of impermanence, I'm doing the anatta practice. And that feels like that can't be right, or it feels like it's too much, uh, too much doing. There's a resistance and an objection to doing. Okay? And one prefer, a lot of people would prefer non-doing. But... Putting a lens of anatta on, or a lens of impermanence, um, or a lens of letting go of the clinging, you have to see something. Actually, it's a non-doing. So usually what we do is me, mine, me, mine, cling, reject, want, push, pull. We're doing that all the time, and we're just completely used to it. It's completely a habit. We're completely habituated to it. And we take that as normal. And then when we, someone might suggest letting go of that doing, we feel that that letting go is actually a doing. All it is is just interrupting an, a very ingrained habit of doing. And it feels like a doing at first. Soon enough it will feel like a non-doing. All these three characteristic practices, you could say... Uh, borrowing a term from the Christian mystics, it's kind of practicing what they call a holy disinterest. A holy disinterest in phenomena. So, it's not really opposite, but usually when we talk about mindfulness, it's about being very interested in experience and very giving a lot of attention to our experience. And What we're actually doing is a kind of just not interested, not interested, not interested, but it's it's holy, <laughs> in the sense it's, it's coming from a, a deep letting go, and uh, it's coming with a, a, a deep spiritual intention. You know, it's a different quality from just being kind of spaced out and, and not interested. It's a holy disinterest. There's a beautiful, some of you will know this, from Dogen, the, the Zen master, if I get it right. To walk the Buddha way is to study the self, I think it begins. And then he says, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And then he he goes on, he says, to be enlightened by all things is to drop mind and body of self and other. To drop mind and body. It's what we're doing, kind of dropping mind, dropping the preoccupation with things through seeing them a certain way. It's a holy disinterest. The Buddha sometimes can sound quite um, judgmental, uh, sometimes. But he says, See them floundering in their sense of mine, like fish in the puddles of a dried up stream. Harsh image. And seeing this, live with no mine. Live with no mind, not forming attachment for states of becoming, for states of being. 
he goes on, he says, comprehending sense contact, comprehending sense contact with no greed, the enlightened person doesn't adhere to what's seen or heard. Comprehending perception, the sage, not stuck in possessions, crosses over the flood and lives heedfully with arrow removed, with, with suffering removed. Uh, that word comprehending means to see that things are not self, to see them as not self. But it also means to see that they're empty of inherent existence. And these practices of the three characteristics, we're just starting them, but I'm just pointing to where they're going. As I said, they unfold, and eventually they reveal the emptiness of inherent existence of all phenomena. So we, we go with them, as I said, as avenues that unfold, that lead to their own... Uh, kind of insights. Okay, last Let's just have a minute of quiet together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.